Fantastic stuff. Thank you, Tom. Good morning, everyone. If you brought a Bible this morning, which I hope you did, I know we don't do that anymore, do we? Bring our Bibles, because it's all, it's the words off the wall, right? We've got the words off the wall, and uh, so we never bring our Bibles anymore. But I still bring my Bible, because when I get bored, I can make up new sermons while Pastor Tom's <laughs> preaching. Now, I happen to know for a fact he does that, too, so all that writing you see him doing over there, that's... You know, those are messages coming up. Hey, only the second, third time. Okay. <laughs> uh, did I tell you where we were going? Psalm 37. Psalm 37, if you've brought in a Bible. If you haven't, we have the words off the wall. So they'll be up there in a second. Well, the Lord put this message on my heart about months ago or so, and I think it was even before Pastor Tom asked me to preach today, and it just, he just, like he so often does in our lives, he just deposited something in my heart, and I, I call it like the Old Testament prophets are spoken of, the burden of the Lord, you know, that he'll just drop this burden in your heart, and it doesn't have a lot of definition or that sort of thing, but as you pray it through and think it through and begin to study the scripture and the passage and that sort of thing, um, a message will often come out of that. But I guess I just want to start just by saying that, you know, this is something the Lord is doing in my life. And I think oftentimes as preachers, those are the messages congregations hear are the things that the Lord is doing in the preacher's life. And so today, I want to just talk to you a little bit about worry and overcoming worry. And if you don't have a problem with worry, hopefully you will by the time we're done. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I'm, I'm not necessarily talking about just, you know, the worries we have sometimes when a big decision is coming up and we're trying to think it through carefully. I'm not necessarily talking about that. I'm not talking about the occasional passing worry that probably all humans have, I would think. But I want to talk to you this morning about chronic worry, that it's just a part of our lives that we are, we are we're, uh, worrisome. I want to talk to you about the, the kind of worry that, you know, you kick the covers off in the middle of the night because you're practically sweating thinking about, you know, the what might happen in this particular case. In fact, as I think about worry, I, I think of oftentimes worry come from one or three places. Here's the one or three places. We either worry about the things that have happened in the past, things that we've done, and maybe the ramifications of those things, which is really the worst kind of worry, right? Because there's nothing that we can do about those things. So we worry about the things we've done in the past and maybe how the ramifications of those things might work out. Those are worries that we should abandon just out of hand, but oftentimes we don't. And then there are the day-to-day worries, you know, those things which are hitting us right where we live. You know, we'll get a telephone call from one of our children, and that'll make us worry. Or we'll get a phone call from our parents, and that'll make us worry. Or we'll, uh, something will happen, and we'll begin to worry about, about that. Just the everyday, everyday things. 
We worry about finances. We worry about relationships. We worry at times about our relationship with the Lord. Um, It's just easy at times to slip into that attitude of worry. And then probably the most prevalent sort of worry is that worry about the future. What's going to happen in the future? You know, if I do this or that or the other thing, how's that going to work out for me in the days ahead? And so we'll worry about the future. But I found as I was thinking about this whole idea of overcoming worry, I wanted to think about the physical effects of worry. So I went online and went to one of those medical sites, and I have for you this morning just a few physical effects of worry. As I'm saying this, it reminds me of a teaching that I do probably once a year for our, our small group leaders, our new, new small group leaders, and it's, the, uh, it's called the Symptoms of Burnout. And it's got about 10, 10 uh, different symptoms of burnout. And uh, I remember one time years and years ago, probably 10, 12 years ago, I don't know, a long time ago, uh, I was reading down through that list, teaching on that list, and I thought, I have every one of these symptoms. <laughs> So I hope as I read these to you this morning, you're not one of those that could say, you know what, I have every one of those symptoms. But here's a few of them. Physical effects of worry. Persistently elevated blood pressure and heart rate raises your risk of cardiovascular disease. So persistently elevated blood pressure and heart rate. A depressed immune system makes it harder for your body to fight off all sorts of diseases or battle them once you get sick. Here's another one. Worry reduces the protective fluids in the lining of your digestive system, exasperating the risk and severity of ulcers and other digestive disorders. All of a sudden, everybody feels a little sick to your stomach. And then number four, which I thought was really interesting. Number four says chronic worry reduces your ability to form new memories and to recall old ones. So you might think, boy, life is really going by fast and I can't remember the things that happened last week or last year. Maybe it has something to do with chronic worry. But worry not only has physical effects, it also has spiritual effects. The Bible tells us that worry leads to distraction. Case in point, Mary and Martha. Where Martha was so busy with so many things and, and Mary was waiting at the feet of Jesus. It wasn't that Mary was so busy. Being busy is not wrong. The problem was is that she was distracted by her busyness. That's the problem. She was distracted, and Jesus says to her, uh, Martha, you are distracted and worried about so many different things. And so worry in our lives can distract us from the better part of what God's called us to. Distract us from our relationship with the Lord so that can lead to distraction. Secondly, it can lead to unfruitfulness. Case in point, the seed and the sower, as the sower goes out and casts the seed along the ground. One of those seeds fall upon rocky soil, and Jesus, in talking about that 
parable a little bit later says, this is the one that the seed was sown and, and, it, and it sprung up for a while, but, it, but it, um, uh, it died out. And relates it to the cares and concerns and the worries of this life. So, spiritually speaking, worry cannot only cause us to be distracted, but it can also cause us to be unfruitful. And then finally, worry can even lead to doing evil. Now in our passage today, which I'm going to read to you in just a second, but I'm going to read, I'm going to read a verse 8 to you to begin with just to strike this point. It says in verse 8, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not worry or do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. Let me give you another case in point. Perhaps we could use Abraham and Ishmael here, where Abraham worries that he is going to have a child to carry on uh, uh, the blessing of the Lord. And Sarah worried along with him. Or perhaps Saul and Samuel, where Saul goes and makes an offering because he's, he's worried the people are going to rebel and walk away. Or perhaps uh, the Israelites at Kadesh Barnea, when they were worried to go in, really fearful to go into the land that God promised them. And so this morning, I want to just talk to you in the next few moments about overcoming worry in our lives. How can we overcome worry in our lives? So let's look at Psalm 37 there on the board. Pastor Tom asked me if I wanted tape for this this morning. I said, no, I don't like that sticky stuff on my skin. He also gave me a new title for my message. Instead of helping overcoming worry, he thought it'd be better of just overcoming worry. And I said, you know what? I should have talked to you first. He goes, yeah, bro, you should talk to me first. (laughs) And uh, I also should have listened to him about the tape on my ear here. So here's Psalm 37, verses 1 through 8. Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not, or excuse me, do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness at bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of a man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we just want to say thank you for the things that you have in store for us in the next few moments. We want to say thank you for speaking out of your word, for challenging us and comforting us and and inspiring us from it. Lord, we pray that you would do that today. We pray that you would continue to grow us into the image and the measure of the stature of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would build brick upon brick, Lord, 
challenge us, change us, mold us this morning, we pray. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, four things that I think we can do to overcome worry in our lives. And they're all found here in this passage. The first one is in number three, trust in the Lord. Verse number four, delight yourself in the Lord. Verse number five, commit your way to the Lord. And then finally, verse number number seven, rest in the Lord. But let's look at this first one in overcoming worry. First, we must trust in the Lord. I find that these things that I've just mentioned to you kind of build on each other. And at the bottom, the foundation is this whole idea of trust. I mean, obviously, it is rudimentary to our faith. Obviously, elementary, obviously bedrock to our faith that we must trust him. We trust him first when we come to him with our very lives. Our very lives laid down before him. That's what happens when we make him Lord and Savior of our life. We take ourselves off the throne room of our life and we put Jesus on that throne, throne room of our life. We lay our lives before him. When we dedicate children, we bring them before the Lord. And we dedicate them unto the Lord saying, Lord, take this child of mine. Make him yours. And in so many different ways throughout life after becoming a follower of Jesus, we lay our lives down again and again, trusting him. Trusting him as our faithful father. And so you can see why this is so bedrock to begin with. This idea of trust is probably exactly the opposite of relying on ourselves. It's like what the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 3 where he says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. It's the idea that we put our trust in him and no longer in ourselves. Now, there might be things that he has called us to do and asked us to do, but ultimately, our trust must be in him. Trust is crucial to overcoming worry. It's crucial to it. We have to believe that he is God and that he is a rewarder of those that seek him. That he loves us and cares for us and works on our behalf. This is not a trust necessarily of what he has done, although that is part and parcel of the Lord. When we get him, we get his works too. But if we put our trust in the things the Lord does for us, we're going to end up worrying quite a bit because things will change. Circumstances will change around us. Our trust needs to be bedrock in God. It needs to be built upon him, not on the things he does, but on who he is. In fact, as you read through the Old Testament in so many different places, of course, reading on into the New Testament as well, we see men and women of faith following the Lord in hard times and hard circumstances because their faith is in God the Father. That they have put their trust in him. They are following him, not the circumstances around him. It is not unusual for believers to be able to say with Paul, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. And then a moment later saying, rejoice again, I say, rejoice. 
That at times is the believer's life. That although circumstances may be less than enjoyable, still we have a bedrock. God the Father that takes care of us. There's another psalm not too far away from this one. A psalm of David where the psalmist is saying this in Psalm 13. Verse 5, he says, speaking of the Lord, but I have trusted, I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So here is David rejoicing in the Lord like so many of his other psalms. But note the beginning of the song. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I make counsel my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy exalt over me? You see, David, his, in his circumstances, weren't that great, at least at this moment. And yet he found consolation in the Lord. Yet he found a place, a a solid bedrock in the Lord. I will trust him. I'm thinking about the book of Lamentations. Lamentations was written by Jeremiah in our Bible. it, It comes right after the book of Jeremiah. Half of Jeremiah, well, the first part of Jeremiah, let me put it that way. The first part of Jeremiah was written by Jeremiah while uh, he was in Jerusalem, uh, while it was being, while it was being uh, uh, under attack. And the second half of Jeremiah, he's, written, he's writing when he's already being taken away into captivity. Lamentations is Jeremiah's writing of the destruction of Jerusalem. When Jerusalem is being destroyed, and, and Jeremiah spares no details as he's talking about how, how the city has been under siege, the people are starving to death, they're, they're eating their own waste, they're, they're uh, um, um, giving in to cannibalism and other things as, this, as the city is under siege. It says here in chapter 3 of Lamentations, Jeremiah writing... I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me, he has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. And as I read down in this section, all these verses, well, most of these verses start with he, capital H. Speaking of this is what God has done. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged me and encompassed me. He has, willed, he has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. He shuts me out in prayer. He is, he is like a bear lying in wait. He has turned aside my ways. And it goes on uh, for a longer period. And then seemingly out of nowhere... In verse 20 of that same chapter, Jeremiah says this. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind. 
Therefore, I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. You see, Jeremiah's comfort was not found in his circumstances. It was found in trusting in the Lord. It's like the writer of Habakkuk, or the writer, Habakkuk, the writer of Habakkuk, coincidentally, um, (laughs) says, though the fig tree perish, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce fruit. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And the Lord God is my strength. And he has made my feet like hind's feet and make me to walk on high places for the choir director and the stringed instrument it goes on to say. It's like Job when he says, though he slay me. Yet, I will praise him. This is a bedrock trust in God the Father. This is laying our lives down before him. It doesn't matter what I see in my circumstances. I will trust you. Now, guys, if we can develop such a trust like that in our lives, we will be unshakable. We will be unshakable because our trust will not be in our circumstances, not those things that are happening around us, not in wayward children, not in bad finances, not in sick parents, not of any of that. Our faith and our trust will be in the Lord. So I ask myself, how can we do that? You know, I think intuitively we think, we think, you know, if, if God will protect me and if God will do this and if God will bless my life, then I will trust him. But it's not that way at all. It's not that way at all. We might enjoy those things, but those things are going to change in our lives. And as soon as they change, we call into question the Lord's character. Or maybe we say that, you know, what, what have I done? I must have done something wrong. The Lord's blessing isn't upon my life anymore. Instead of trusting in him, that he still has us. Here are three things that I think will change the way you think about um, your trust in the Lord. Three things. You might want to write these down. So Pastor Joel says to me on occasion. <laughs> Greg, you might want to write these things down. <clears throat> Number one. God is ultimately sovereign over all the earth. He is ultimately sovereign. Now, granted that he will, he will, um, I got in trouble saying this once, so I want to say it in the right way. Uh, I used to say he gives away his sovereignty, and, and someone said, well, does that mean he's not sovereign when he gives away? No, he's always sovereign. But he'll allow us to be sovereign over certain things in our lives. That's true. But he is ultimately sovereign. He'll give all sorts of things away to his, to his followers that they can choose on their own. 
When I got up this morning, I did not pray or seek the Lord about the shirt I would wear. In fact, my choices were not that broad. And, uh, and so I picked this one out. I didn't think the Lord would matter either. I don't think he would care either way. So I chose this one. What do you think? But God is ultimately in control. At the very least, he allowed me to to choose this shirt. At the very least. Because he could have intervened at any moment. He could have said, no, Greg, not that shirt, this shirt. Or he could have somehow brought circumstances about where I wouldn't have chosen this shirt, I would have chosen another shirt. He would do that, and he has done that. He intervenes in our lives all the time, but ultimately, he is sovereign. And when I say sovereign, I mean all-powerful over all the earth, that he can, he can make his choices and his choices stand. Like one verse says, God is in heaven, he does as he pleases. Ultimately, he is in control. If we are going through a period of suffering, if we're going through a period of worry, we can be assured that he is in control. That he is in control of that situation. At the very least, let me say it again. At the very least, he's allowed it to happen. At the very least, he can undertake any time he wants. Now, if God were only sovereign, it wouldn't be very comforting. I mean, it helps, but it wouldn't be very comforting. But when you add to that, that God is also loving That changes a lot. Because now God is not only able, but now he's desiring to undertake on our behalf. Now he's wanting to undertake. Now he's wanting to give us good things. Now he's wanting our lives to be shaped and molded into the image of Christ. Now he's, now his heart is towards us. It's not just like he's all powerful and he just, he's just going to fold his hands and look the other way. He's both all powerful. For those that are taking notes, this is, this is, Daniel chapter 4, sovereign, Daniel chapter 4. And he's also loving. I'm thinking of this, ber- this verse from 1 Peter that says this that we can cast all our anxiety on him because he cares for us. He cares for us. <laughs> we can cast our worries upon him. Because he is not only sovereign, but he cares for us as well. And here's the third, here's the third reason why I think it's, it's um, important for us to trust him. Not only, because, not only because he's sovereign over all the earth, he can do whatever he wants. Not only because he's loving. I mean, if he was just those, thing, just those two things, it would almost be enough. But here's the third thing. He's also faithful to do it. He's also faithful. He could be just sovereign and loving and be aloof, but he's not. He's sovereign, loving, and faithful. Faithful in all his ways. Faithful to his people. Faithful beyond belief. You guys could do better for faithful God, right? Yeah. I love this story in the Old Testament. I love it so much, I've probably shared it with you before, but um, when Joseph was dying, he knew 
that one day the children of Israel would go up out of, out of uh, Egypt. And so we know that they were in Egypt about 400 years um, and then uh, into the promised land 40 or so years later. So let's just say 440 years. And Joseph knew that one day they would go back to the promised land. So, and Joseph's, Joseph's, uh, maybe it's just Joseph's, uh, on Joseph's deathbed, uh, he says, take my bones up with you when you go into the promised land. Have I told you this? Okay, good. This is new material. Take my bones when you go up into the promised land. Now think, this is, this is 440 years later that this is going to happen. Take my bones. And I think about those 400 years in Egypt. What were they doing with Joseph's bones? Who had Joseph's bones? Where were they? Were they in the family tent? I mean, these guys were nomads, you know? I mean, I can imagine, you know, picking up, and we're going to go over here now. Now don't forget Joseph's bones, you know? <laughs> someone, was, someone was in charge of Joseph's bones. And then you got 400 years in Egypt, and then you go up to, up to uh, the promised land. And so here comes Joseph's bones along, along with them. You know, someone's taking care of Joseph's bones. And then finally, they settle in the promised land, and the Bible records, and they took Joseph's bones, and they buried them in the promised land. You know, to me, that speaks so much of the Lord's faithfulness in our life. I mean, discounting, of course, that he promised them that they would occupy the promised land, and they did, um, and a host of other uh, promises. But those bones, all along the way, were never forgotten. Those bones were brought along, and finally, on the appointed day, they were buried in the promised land. There's another scripture. That scripture comes at the end of Joshua There's another scripture that comes just a few chapters before that. And it says this. And all the promises of the Lord came to pass, and not a one of them failed. So as they're coming into the as they're coming into the promised land, as as God's blessed, as God has promised uh, uh, hundreds of years ago that they would enter into the promised land. Now finally it's happened. None of the promises of the Lord failed. All came to pass. Now when they were fighting those battles to enter into the promised land, when they were disappointed and discouraged in the wanderings in the wilderness, when a whole generation died off, sure it would be easy to think the Lord's not going to come through. But guys, remember this morning, he is infinitely faithful infinitely faithful in our lives. His promises will come to pass. They will come to pass for me and they will come to pass for you and they will come to pass for us. That's what the Bible teaches us. And so we can put our our faith, our trust, not in our circumstances, but in him who is sovereign, who is loving and who is faithful. And if we'll somehow keep those three character traits of the Lord in mind, that will help us to trust in him. God is in control of this situation. He hasn't lost control of this. God loves me. His outcome for me is for good. And God is faithful. He hasn't gone away. 
He hasn't gone away. His promises are going to come to pass in my life. That will help you in times of worry. So number one, trust in the Lord. Number one, trust in the Lord. Number two, delight yourself in the Lord. As we read on there in Psalm 37, verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. This word delight means to take pleasure in. To take pleasure in. To gain great pleasure or satisfaction or happiness. To me, it's like the magnitude of a sunset or staring up at the Milky Way at night and the, the uncountable number of stars. It's like, it's like going to the Grand Canyon and looking across and just, and just being in, in awe, just ad, ad, admiring how great it is. My daughter and son-in-law and their family live out in Seattle, Washington, and uh, I was out there a couple of years ago visiting them. I think I was by myself for some reason. And uh, I was on my way to Cabela's. You know they have Cabela's all over the United States? Yeah. So, uh, so I'm on my way to Cabela's. I'm thinking, boy, this Cabela's has to be a lot different than our Cabela's, which it wasn't. But anyway. So I'm on my way to Cabela's. And I'm driving down the main north-south highway there. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, to my left-hand side, I see this huge, huge mountain. I mean, it is huge. Mount Rainier. And I'm going down the road, and I'm thinking, this, this thing is right. And I could not get my eyes off of it. You know, it, it was just so majestic and so beautiful. And I'm heading down the highway, and I'm, I just keep looking over, and the trees would come and separate us, and I'd be looking over to see, catch another, another view of it. And when I got home, I wanted to tell them all about, about how I saw Mount Rainier, because it's not always visible. Since then, they've moved to a new place, and at the end of their block, they live on a cul-de-sac, and at the end of the block, you can walk down to the end of the street and see Mount Rainier. And so I walk down, oftentimes, get up early in the morning, walk down to the end of the street, go on a little prayer walk, you know, and, and uh, uh, one morning I made my way down a little bit farther and went and got some donuts and things of that sort to bring back when other people got up. And, and as I'm walking down, I'm just stealing glimpses of Mount Rainier. And I'm thinking, I don't want to, are you guys like this? I'm thinking, I don't want to be like a tourist, right? So I don't want to be walking down the street just staring at the mountain. So when cars aren't going by, I mean, I'm just staring. This is just so majestic. It's so beautiful. And it's huge. It's huge. Did I, did I emphasize that enough? It's huge. <laughs> and as I'm talking to my daughter and my son-in-law about, you know, Mount Rainier and how beautiful and all that is, they go, well, you know, it's like 130 miles away from here. I'm like, are you kidding me? It looks like it's right there. I mean, how big would this thing be if you were like standing right next to it? For whatever reason, maybe it's because I'm an outdoorsman. Maybe it's because I, I love nature. 
but it fascinated me. It just gave me great pleasure. Someone said years ago, I forget who said this, but someone said, admiration is one of this life's greatest pleasures. To be able to admire someone or something is one of this life's greatest pleasures. When we think about delighting ourselves in the Lord, I think we have to make a distinction between delighting ourselves in the things God has done and delighting ourselves in him. I think there has to be a distinction because, again, sometimes God isn't doing as many things as we'd like him to do. And that might change a little bit about about, uh, how we trust him and therefore maybe about how much we worry I think our delight has, there has to be a little, a little uh, separation here that, that we're, not, we're not just only delighting in the things God has done, his blessings, the things he's poured out on us, but we're delighting in him. We're delighting in him. We're like the, we're like the woman with the alabaster ointment worth about a, it, uh, about a year's wages. She poured out on Jesus' feet and mopped his feet with her, ha- her hair and kissed his feet, just adoring Jesus. Delighting in him. Guys, I want this more in my life. I want to find everything my heart longs for in him. Everything my heart longs for, I want to find in him. In fact, that's what the verse tells us. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, oftentimes we just make the, the assumption that, well, you know, I need, a, I need a bigger house, I need a bigger TV, I need a bigger car, I need, a, I need a new boat, I need all these things. That's not what he's talking about here. Of course, you knew that, but there might be one or two of us that didn't know that. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying, you delight in me, and all your heart longs for will be satisfied in that. If you can find delight in me, all your heart longs for will be satisfied in that. Guys, this works. This works. I mean, there have been many times in my life and in your lives, I know as well. There have been many times in my life when I've been so full of Jesus that I didn't want anything else. I didn't want anything else. There was a time many years ago I was going to the revival meetings in, in Brownsville, Florida. Maybe you've heard us talk about those in passing from time to time. And these meetings were so powerful. I mean, God was so present in those meetings that for many of the meetings, all I could do was weep through the meetings. Because you begin with worship and, and God was so present and you're, you're trying to get out these words of God's majesty and his goodness and his faithfulness and all that. But it was so real that all I could do is, is just weep in his presence. And we went back and forth to Florida probably five times, if not six times that year. We used to, we used to call ourselves Pensacola Poor because the church was in Pensacola, Florida. We used to call ourselves Pensacola Poor because we kept running back and forth to Pensacola. Guys, believe me when I say, if it wasn't for the calling of God, if it wasn't for God's call upon my life, I would have been moving my whole family down there. Because the presence of the Lord was so powerful in that place. I didn't care. I didn't, I didn't care for anything else. Anything else could have been left behind. In fact, <coughs> everything else seemed to be a distraction. Everything else in my life seemed to be a distraction from the Lord. All I wanted was him. To be close to him, to be near him. He satisfied 
everything. And somehow, if we can find our delight in the Lord, that he will satisfy us as well. Delighting not in the things he's done for us, but delighting in him. (coughs) So, how can I delight myself in the Lord? I'm glad you asked. You might want to write this down. By seeing and savoring, by seeing and savoring him as infinitely admirable or admirable, however you want to pronounce that. I'm going to say it admirable to make my point. Seeing and savoring him as infinitely admirable. Okay, three parts. First of all, seeing. We have to see him. That is the first step. We have to see him. We have to have our lives in such an order that we are, we are uh, communing, we are communicating with him, we are seeing him. I think the main way we see Jesus is right here in this book. I would say probably, in my estimation, I'd probably say 95% of how, what God reveals to us is found right here. Now, God's speaking to us all the time, if we'll listen. But still, I think, 95% of what we know about the Lord, what he's revealing to us, is right here in this book. If we will make this our constant study, we will begin to see him. We will begin to see his infinite attributes. We'll begin to see how good he is. We'll begin, we'll begin to see his love for us, his faithfulness towards us, his, his um, uh, sovereignty in all the earth. It begins with seeing Jonathan Edwards, who uh, some of you have heard of the name. He is famous as a revivalist uh, years past 18th century. Also a a well-known theologian at the time. He's most well-known for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But he preached, of course, many, many sermons. In one of his sermons called The Excellencies of Christ, he says this. The person of Christ brings together infinite highness and infinite condescension. Meaning that he's not only infinite high, but he condescends, he bows down towards us. He has infinite justice and infinite grace. He has infinite glory and lowest humility. He has infinite majesty and unparalleled meekness. He has the deepest reverence for the Father and equality with the Father. He has the greatest worthiness of good and the greatest patience when suffering evil. He has exceeding obedience and complete dominion over all the earth. Absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation. Entire sufficiency and entire reliance upon the Father. Just to see him, just to see him would be, would be a, a, such a giant step in the right direction. But I add this, not only seeing, but savoring. 
Not only seeing, but savoring him. And when I talk about savoring, I'm talking about like our Thanksgiving meal. When everybody went up to the buffet and they're getting their turkey and their squash and their sweet potatoes and their, and their uh, what, what, what? Cranberries. Cranberries, thank you, cranberries. Uh, anybody over here? <laughs> okay, you're getting all this stuff, you know, and then, then we all sat down and what happens next? All of a sudden this room of 20 some people just gets quiet. And what do you hear? Mmm. Mmm. It sounded like a barnyard full of cattle, you know. Mmm. Mmm. I mean, you're not only seeing, you are, you are savoring. I remember being out to eat one time with a group of pastors, and across the table from me was your friend of mine, Dave Bechtold. And Dave took a bite of this, of this, um, uh, a steak that was custom made. The, the place that we were at was someone's home, but they had hired a chef to come in and for this group of pastors from our church and other churches, uh, uh, custom made our, our, our meal that night for us. And Dave takes a bite of his, of his steak and his eyes go closed and he's just, mm, mm, mm. and I'm just watching him. I mean, he is thoroughly enjoying this, this steak. Part of delighting in the Lord is not only seeing him, part of it is savoring him, of savoring him, of, of, of seeing a part of him and just ruminating on that, just, just savoring his, his attributes, just thinking on him and the things of, of him. Of course, we have to make time for that in our lives, but that's part of delighting in him that we see him and that we savor his, him in his infinite attributes. So I would say here, if you are interested in delighting more in the Lord, that you see and savor him as infinitely admirable, infinitely, far bigger than a, a huge mountain or a grand canyon or a sunset or a universe or a universe. He is much bigger than all those things. So number one, trust in the Lord. Number two, delight in the Lord. Number three, verse five, commit your way to the Lord. Now this might be a little bit different than you expect. Because in the original language at the root, it is this idea of rolling away or giving over. So when we talk about committing our way to the Lord, it means to turn over to the Lord our whole life, all our desires, our problems, our worries, our anxieties. Let the Lord have those. God wants to carry the burdens of our life. He says, come to me, you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Cast your burden on me, and I will sustain you. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This is his desire. But how do we cast our burdens on him? I mean, typically we do this for like 60 seconds, right? And then we take them all back again. And maybe you can make it to five minutes or maybe half a day, but oftentimes we take those back. Let me give you some ideas on casting your cares on the Lord. Number one, turn to Jesus. Turn to him. Don't just say it'll be fine or it will work out or God will take care of it. Turn to him. Make him the center of your worry. Turn to him. Number two, ask God to deliver you 
from those worries. So first turn to him. Secondly, ask him to deliver you from those. That might not be his intention that you be in those worries or in that, in that circumstance that is causing those worries. So ask him for deliverance. If those things don't work, if he, if he does not deliver you, then third, trust the Lord for the outcome. Refer back to point number one. Trust the Lord for the outcome. Trust the Lord to do what's right. I think of Jesus when he was being accused before Pilate. It's said there that he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Trust the Lord. Entrust yourself to him that he will do what's right. Again, 1 Peter says, Therefore those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So number one, under this whole area of trusting him again, is trust the Lord to do what's right. Then trust the Lord to take care of every need that your cares are producing. Every need that might be there. If you need wisdom, if you need finances, if you need comfort, if you need grace, if you need strength, if you need joy, trust the Lord to meet that need. And then finally, trust the Lord to orchestrate everything. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We can trust him. We can trust him. And then finally, We have number one in overcoming our worries, trust in the Lord, verse three. Delight yourself in the Lord, verse four. Commit your way or cast your cares upon the Lord, verse five. And then finally, verse seven, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Now this idea of resting is obviously not the idea of taking a Sunday nap. This idea of resting is is giving our cares and concerns over to the Lord and then waiting patiently for him to do something about them. It's about, it's about little self-reliance on our, on our part, little self-help. It's rest from striving. It's to wait patiently for him to undertake. And of course, this is done by trusting in him about putting our faith in him initially and then as we lead our lives, by placing our desires, his desires, before our own, and then finally by giving these things to him in prayer. The Bible reminds us, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ. I think it's easy for all of us to worry. I think it's easy for all of us to get caught up in the things of life and trust our own wisdom, our own experience, our own strength to overcome those things. But ultimately, that's not what the Lord wants. Ultimately, the Lord wants us to trust him. That he wants us to lay those things in his his lap. That he wants us to delight in him. 
When we delight in him, our worries, in many times, they just, they just pale in insignificance. They just pale into insignificance because we have found him to, to be our delight. And these other things just become incidental. That we commit our ways to him, rolling those things over to him. And then finally, and this might be the hardest part, finally, we just simply rest in him and let him do the work. Let's stand together this morning. We'll pray. Worship team's coming to lead us in a final word of worship. As you're standing, if you wouldn't mind just closing yourself in with the Lord this morning, I just want to ask a couple questions. And then I want to pray over you, and then we'll sing a song, and then we'll be dismissed this morning. So as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, just shut yourself in with the Lord. It's just our little little time here at the end of the service to do business with the Lord. Let me ask you this question first. You're here this morning and you've never made that initial commitment to Christ. You've never put your faith in him to forgive you of your sins. And to give you everlasting life. But this morning you want to. This morning the spirit has pricked your heart or you've heard something that is that has challenged you. And this morning you want to make that decision to follow the Lord Jesus. It will most likely revolutionize your life. The Bible tells us that it's like being born again, that old things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. He forgives us our sins that we might have eternal life with him. But he also gives us abundant life in this life. If you're looking for Jesus this morning, you can find him right here. And it's just as easy. You don't have to join a church. You don't have to be baptized. You don't have to go to confirmation. You don't have to do any of those things. All you have to do is right where you're seated. I believe. That's all you have to do. Just tell the Lord, I believe, Lord. I believe that you are my Savior. I believe that you are my Lord. I believe that you've come to the earth to rescue me. That you were on a rescue mission and I want to be rescued this day. If that's you, just say, I I believe, I believe. And then for that other group this morning, you're here this morning and And really, there have been those times in your life of chronic worry where you've given way too much thought to things that you shouldn't have. But today, you want to put a deeper trust in him. You want to delight in your Savior like never before. You want to turn those things over to him, and you want to rest in him. I want to pray for you today. I'm going to do a closing prayer in a second, but I want to pray for you today. If you're making a first-time decision to follow the Lord, or that is you today, 
where you would just want to put, your, put, put a deeper faith in him, a deeper trust in him. You want to delight more greatly in him. You want to turn these things over to him. I would love to solidify that with you in prayer. At the end of the service, I'll be right down here in front. There'll be other prayer teams that come. If you want prayer today, there'll be people up here to pray with you across the front. You just come when Brian begins to play. But if this message has spoken specifically to you and you want to take the next step of just solidifying these things with the Lord, I'd be glad to pray for you right down here at the front. Or if you're making a first-time commitment, I'd love to pray with you right down here at the front. As soon as Brian begins to lead us in, worship you come. So let me pray over you this morning. We'll be dismissed. Lord, we just want to say thank you for the things that you're speaking into our lives this day. We want to say thank you for how your word continues to challenge us, continues to inspire us, continues to bring us along in the things of you. Lord, we want to say thank you for who you are. Lord, help us in these days to trust you more and to fall deeper in love with you, that you would be our all in all, that you would be our heart's only desire, that you would fulfill all our heart is ever longed for. Lord Jesus, come in these days. Do great things in my life and these that have gathered here. And we ask it all this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together.